I am today. Paul ain't feeling well. Paul wasn't feeling well yesterday. He had a bad day. So he called me mid-late afternoon yesterday, and I'm like, well, I don't think I can craft a brand new one, but I can adapt an old one. So I did. <laughs> Preach, prayer, die, right? Yeah, that would be good. Morning, Terry. Morning, Doug. Yeah, today I am. Is that okay. our bulletin? Yeah, uh, and I have one back here for you, too. Super. Had a rough morning in terms, yesterday, actually. He's feeling okay today. Oh, good. But he didn't have the wherewithal, if you will, to prepare and get ready for today. So okay. he called me late late afternoon yesterday. I'm like, well, I don't think I can prepare something new. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'll uh, definitely um, uh, adapt something. So we also have communion today. I'm planning on us being able to do that. Too. Yeah. And uh, you guys are both on for that, unless you have to leave or something. And we'll, yeah, we checked for that. And then it's uh, Dale and Dan on for counting. Uh, they are with Naomi currently, honey. Oh, you know what? I don't have anyone who's supposed to do scripture reading. Um, oh, okay. All right. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's Psalm seventy-eight, uh, verses one through eight. Okay. George, I guess we're going to forego because it's already 10.30. We're going to get going. So. You can come up here if you want. It doesn't bother me either way. Uh, the mic's in the back for just convenience mostly. You just got to turn It's on. You just got to turn it on and it, read. It and works well. It, yeah, I mean, so. on the stream. So. Yeah, it's... You want to come up and read? That's fine. I, yep, I come just, up. Yeah, come up and read. Yeah. I guess we're just going to go ahead and start. Can we... Uh, let's turn off...
Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Take a look at a couple of announcements. If you uh, have not been, please place your offering uh, in the offering box there. Uh, Andrea's number again for uh, prayer chain. Days of Praise booklets are here for the uh, next quarter, along with the new Acts and Facts. Here's our Acts and Facts. I think that's the one. Nope. That's December. That's the old one. So anyway, make use of those. Always good. We're in need of someone to pick up the church mail, and that is a weekly chore, and you have to go to the Metamora Post Office. Uh, if you're interested, see Terry. And Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. See, in the, uh, our church praying, obviously we want to keep Pastor Luke in your prayers, Mercy, many others. Anything I've missed this morning? Baby? Baby? Mm -hmm. Do we have a name? Malachi. Okay, Malachi. Nice. Congratulations. Our family, not me, but our family is also awaiting uh, any moment. Uh, uh, my, my son Luke and his wife are. She saw the doctor on Thursday and he said, I'll see you this weekend. So, <laughs> so it's close. Uh, um, all right. <laughs> we have a responsive reading this morning uh, for our meditation. That is Psalm 139, and that's page 836 in the Trinity. Let's stand together and read. O oh Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You receive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea. Even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness 
For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days were taken from me were written in your book before one of them came to me. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Ask that God would bless his word. Let's ask the Lord to bless us as we meet together. George, would you open for us? Thanks. Amen. Will you take your red hymnal this morning, the Trinity, and turn to number 495, 495 in the Trinity.
Thank you. You may be seated. Looking for a favorite hymn this morning. Going once. Naomi's got her hand up. Going twice. <laughs> Naomi. Four nine eight in the red. So just a couple pages over. Cool. Do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? Do you have a reason?
Our scripture reading this morning is found in Psalm 78th chapter. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. That's page 914 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 78, 1 through 8. Please join us in standing as we read the <clears throat> O oh, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. O oh, Father, may you bless this reading of your holy and inspired word that it falls upon the hearts of sinners and believers, and that those who would hear would be blessed. In the name of Christ, amen. You should take your brown hymnal and turn to number 438, 438 in the brown.
Thank you. You may be seated. our first chance to be together in the new year. I trust that your New Year's celebration was good. We had the chance to be with uh, Andrea's family. It was a good time. Um, what a new year it's been already. <laughs> and the news out there. You know, I've taken a, a break this last week and tried not to be connected to the news, and I've probably chose a bad week, or maybe a good week, based on your opinion of what's happened this week. But um, certainly our country is in turmoil. Um, yesterday, pastor gave me a, a phone call stating that uh, he wasn't feeling well and to be on call, and uh, I knew I didn't have the time I needed to get a new message ready, so I, I went back through the things that I've preached over the years and saw a message I preached in 2002, August of, right before the one-year anniversary of 9-11. And if those of you who were around during that time can remember what the state of our country was in during that year following the attacks, the, the amount of chaos and panic, the new situations that we've gotten used to over the years, we're still having problems with the TSA and going places on our airplanes, but there are some of us who remember walking into an airport and getting on a plane and leaving. And that was the gist of it, and it didn't take long to do so. Now you have to be at the airport, what, two or three hours early and those kind of things. Our country is on the brink of more changes, and I think they're more drastic than the first. And I think the, the message I did update it is more relevant today than it was when I, when I was preached it 2000, in 2002. So um, as we start today, I ask for your prayers. Thank you, George, for praying for me ahead of time and uh, that I would have the... Uh, the wherewithal to get through things today. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are currently uh, reigning on the throne, and there is no um, chance of an uprising against you uh, that's going to succeed. The world is going to try. It says later in your scripture, Lord, that the kings of the earth stand together in rebellion and that your son comes and dashes them with his scepter. And Lord, there isn't going to be a coup that succeeds. And we're thankful for that, Father. We're thankful also for the fact that you've shown us this. Um, you didn't have to, but you show, showed us what is going to transpire. So, Father, thank you for your allowing us to see that, giving us the knowledge to do that. Pray, Lord, that you would help us as people to live accordingly, knowing the end while we are currently living through what you have ordained to come. Pray, Lord, that you'll bless our time today. Help us to learn from Israel um, and the object lesson that you've given us in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. With all of the past events of this last year, from wildfires in Australia and on the west coast of America, to invasive Asian murder hornets, to explosions in Beirut and most recently Nashville, to the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests, to the weeks-long looting of American cities 
to the absolute devastation of COVID-19 and subsequent lockdowns, to the loss of several members of our dear church family, and now most recently the upheaval and unrest in our country as a result of our election. It is important that we, the Christians of Thornville Baptist Church, should look deeply into the aftermath of these events and what is transpiring spiritually in the wake of them. There was so much that God did during the year of 2020, it's hard to take it all in. Most Christians would probably agree that the events of 2020 are a wake-up call from God to his people, and not only the United States, but the entire world as a whole. But how have we as a nation, or more pointedly as God's holy people, responded to his actions to awaken us from our peaceful slumber? Has America turned to God? Is there a renewed effort in the Christian community to be about the work of the Great Commission? Have we repented from the sin which we love so dear? Are we any different now than one year ago before all this collective calamity befell us? I would say to you that we are indeed different. The effects of this past year are indeed very much a part of our lives now. We are still under restrictions about where we can go and what we can do. We must wear a mask when in public and in close contact with others. We are more wary of others. Tensions are high between races. Tensions are extremely high between conservatives and progressives. Yes, we are different. We are adjusting to life with these threats to our safety. But I would offer that not much positive things have happened spiritually in our community. And as a result of this turmoil, have we seen more people turning to Christ? Have we seen radical conversions in the lives of the pagans we live amidst? No. Rather, our countrymen are still as lost as they ever have been. Likewise, the people of God have remained unchanged in their outlook on life. We carry on in much the same way before all of the seeming chaos began, with little or no change in attitude. In essence, these horrible events that took the lives of many people, that jeopardize our freedoms, that signal the beginning of birth pains, have provided no impetus for true change. We are wasting the opportunity to shake off the sin that holds on to us. We are wasting the opportunity to evangelize to the perishing. We are wasting the opportunity to obey Jesus Christ our Lord. It seems as if we are content to wait for the next catastrophe, morbidly dreading what God will bring next. Israel of old witnessed firsthand the miraculous judgment of God and remained unchanged. Their folly brought destruction on almost all of them. They were consumed by fire, plagued with disease, bitten by poisonous snakes, and swallowed up by the earth. And we, too, if we do not heed the warnings from both Scripture and the present happenings around us, will be swept away. Today, let's look at their example in Scripture and see what parallels we can draw about our own time. And before we begin, I'd like to say that we often look at Israel and we wonder to ourselves, how could they do this? And yet, they were called God's people, and we are God's people today. First... Let's see how Israel found themselves in the predicament that they were in 
Turn in your Bibles, and I, today I've put all the Pew Bible page numbers in there, so if you have them, I can get them to you quickly. Exodus 1, page 88, and we'll start at verse 6. Exodus 1, it's page 88 in the Pew Bible. Verse 6 in the following. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out... Will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So Israel, as a large family, has been growing for some time following the deaths of the patriarchs. And a new pharaoh comes to power and knows nothing of Joseph and his kindness towards Egypt. And this tells us that Joseph has been dead for some time. We realize by the time of Moses that the large family has grown into a nation of people. For most of the people of Israel, they have known no other place's home. This is where they were born, as well as their fathers and their grandfathers, etc. All they've ever known is Egypt and its pagan thoughts and idolatry. It is not surprising that amidst their pagan surroundings, they have forgotten God and his covenant to them. But things change quickly when oppression comes into view. In the before-mentioned text, it says that the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. In fact, it states that twice, and it was because of this oppression that they call out for deliverance. In our age, we can draw some hearkening comparisons to Israel's captivity and our own stay in Egypt. We are currently in a hostile and pagan nation. Our country is becoming more intolerant of the Christian faith at ever-increasing levels. I believe that this was the same with Israel. Remember that when Joseph was alive, his whole family came to live in Egypt and were welcomed there. And with the death of Joseph and the passing of time, the Israelites moved from being free guests to total slaves in Egypt. This was not a sudden change, but a gradual one. And we are witnessing the same slide in our country today. We are moving from being normal citizens to becoming the constant thorn in the flesh of this country. We, as I am sure Israel was, are aware of this, and yet we are lethargic in our efforts to counterbalance the false and pagan ideas of men. How long will it take before we, as Israel, are suppressed and subjugated to slavery? I believe we often think that we will eventually find peace in this world. We don't want to rock the boat. We want to be left alone to practice our faith, and so we leave everyone else alone. And we figure that if we do so, they will not bother us. But brethren, to practice our faith effectively, we must bother 
the unbeliever. The very nature of the faith we wish to practice in solitude requires us to be outgoing and intrusive. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Hebrews 4, verse 12. I don't know what that sounds like to you, but to me it sounds like a violent and intrusive instrument that we yield. We will not see true peace in this life. Complete and perfect peace only comes upon entering that glorious city in which our Savior awaits us. Until that time, we will become fools if we believe that we can live out our lives avoiding the spiritual confrontations with the world that happen in daily life. Eventually, as with Israel, one day we will awaken with the yokes of oppression on our necks, the result of God's judgment on us. And for those that say that won't happen in my lifetime, I'll be long gone before any of that ever happens. First of all, how selfish and lazy this attitude is. And I am sure that some of the Israelites may have thought the very same things. And so these people would be content with the fact that because of their silence and ineptitude and grappling with the world and its fallacies, their children and grandchildren will be the ones experiencing the punishments of God and not them. Secondly, it may not be all that long before some of this becomes a reality for the Christian community. Persecution may come in five or ten years or maybe sooner. The call of the Christian is one of immediacy. There is no training time before the young Christian is in the fight. No sooner has the new convert experienced the joy of knowing that their sins are forgiven than they are in the fight for their lives. There is no retirement for the seasoned veteran of many battles. All Christians die in battle. We can never rest on this earth. And I'm sure you've heard many a Christian in the last moments of life witnessing to the lost around them, even as they drew their last breaths. My grandmother was one of them. The Christian life is one of turmoil and constant fighting as we wrestle with the pagan thoughts of this world. We are the salt and the light of the world. We correct the erroneous thoughts of pagan mentality with the correct thinking of God as salt cures wounds. We cast the light of God's word on the darkness of men's minds where those thoughts love to hide. And we experience pain and hardship because of it. Of our lives, Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, In this world, you will have trouble. We must remember, knowing about the Christian armor, that it was not used for defense as we run and hide from the enemy. Rather, the armor is for offensive maneuvers. Brethren, how long has it been since you witnessed to someone on a meaningful level? And I'm not talking about a word in season, but rather that you were actively confronting someone about their sin and offered the hope of salvation through Jesus Christ. And you did this not because you were looking for a fight, but because you were concerned for that person's soul. How long has the terror of being rejected or mocked, kept us from following Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations? Or are we a little shaken by the world's arguments against God's word? There is a reason why evangelism is so important to wrestling with pagan thought in our society. Once a person is converted, 
the world loses another person who hates God and his righteousness, and God's kingdom receives another ally. That is why Paul stated, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. You see, a true Christian never can be converted back into the world. They are held fast by the blood of Christ and his redemptive work. Israel lost their freedom, not because their liberties were slowly taken away, but rather because they forgot God and they reaped the disaster of their own apathy. Let us be fervently about the work of God to bring about change in our society, not for society's good or our own well-being, but because it is what God wants us to do. Secondly, let's look at the wondrous signs that Israel had witnessed. Under the Egyptian captivity, we find that Israel had been calling out to God for deliverance. A few pages over, page 90 in your pew Bible, Exodus 2, verse 23 and following. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. In this text, notice that the Israelites did not cry out to God specifically. Rather, the text says they merely cried out. However, the groans of the people of God brought about God's compassion. The Israelites were groaning out of the severe hardships that they were facing. They were building the Egyptian dynasty as slaves. It was not as if God had forgotten about them. But the timing was not right for God to move beforehand. But now, with the oppression of his people and their crying out for deliverance, God is moved to consider his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel's deliverance is assured. God has made a promise, and he will see it through. By this time, of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all dead and gone. So would it really matter to anyone if God did not keep his promise? I mean, truly, does any one of the Israelites remember the promise? The truth is this, regardless of man, God is faithful. If God has said he will do something, then he will do it. Even if no one remembers the promise made but God, he will do it. And so, although Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants did not know the God of their forefathers, they will receive the benefit of the promise made to them. Later in Exodus, God sends Moses back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh to let his people go. And we know the story, of course. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh to secure Israel's release. When they were refused, Pharaoh made work for the Israelites more strenuous by making them provide their own straw for the bricks they were making. Following this, the Israelites turned on Moses and Aaron. And this attitude of rebellion, unbelief, and ingratitude would forever be used to categorize this generation. Nonetheless, God speaks the following to Moses concerning these people in Exodus 6, page 94 in your Bibles. Exodus 6, starting with the first verse. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also appeared to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. In the series of events that followed, God brought upon Egypt ten terrible plagues. He brought the plagues of the Nile being turned into blood, frogs, gnats, flies, the death of the Egyptian livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and eventually the death of every firstborn. And while Egypt writhed in pain as a result of the arrogance of their pharaoh, there stood Israel watching all of these miraculous events, they saw firsthand with their own eyes the destruction, pestilence, and misery afforded the Egyptians by the hand of Almighty God. And they benefited from these acts as well. For after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh released the Israelites. However, they had not traveled far when their propensity for wickedness was again revealed. As Pharaoh and his armies approached, the people confronted Moses, and in reality, they confronted God. Listen to their accusation in Exodus 14, verse 10. If you're following along, that's page 108. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And rather than to trust the God who had kept them from all the effects of his plagues upon Egypt, they chose to reprimand God's servant for bringing them out of slavery. The Israelites had witnessed the power of God even unto death, of so many animals and people, and yet they could not trust him for delivery from Pharaoh and his army. And so, God again demonstrated his power by separating the waters so that Israel could cross and escape the Egyptians. This miracle, the Israelites witnessed experientially. The plagues back in Egypt were directed towards the Egyptians, not the Israelites. But this time they walked in between the great walls of water as God delivered them once again from the hands of their enemies. The sheer spectacle that that must have been and the fact that the ground that was earlier so much mud was now completely dry, that ought to have been in their minds 
and anchored the notion that their God was sufficient and powerful and worthy of reverence and awe. To some extent, this is what happened. Exodus 14, verse 31 says, And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Now, but this didn't last long. As they started their travails through the desert, they came to a place called Marah. There they found that the waters were bitter. And that's exactly what Marah means, bitter. And so they grumbled against Moses and demanded to know what they were to drink. God again proved that he was going to be faithful in his promise to Abraham's seed by providing drinkable water for them. And as soon as they tasted the sweet water God had provided, they were back to grumbling about him. Not but a few verses later, the Israelites are at it again. Page 112 in your pew Bible, Exodus 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Brethren, ten times did the Israelites grumble and complain against God. They rose up against God the same number of times that he brought the plagues to Egypt. They even went as far as to craft an idol from the gold that they had taken from Egypt. After witnessing this act of defiance, it is no wonder why God told Moses in Exodus 32, verses 9 and 10, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. The final act of disobedience was when this rebellious nation did not believe God when he told them that he would give the land of Canaan to them. They believed the reports of their own spies over the word of God. And following this act of arrogance, God set them to marching around in the desert until all of that generation died off, effectively ending their total lack of faith. Numbers 14, 21 through 23. Page 230 in your pew Bible. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. And so, what, if any lessons, can we learn from Israel's contempt of God? Well, I would offer that we have seen God's might and power in much the same way as Israel did. With the many events of last year, we have seen our comforts uprooted. We have seen how the people around us and our communities have dealt with the pain of God's reprimand. We know full well that these uncomfortable events were directed at waking America up from its moral slide into debauchery. Yet, do we realize that, they, that the real purpose for these events may have been to wake us, the Christians of America, from our sleep? 
I would offer to you that the plagues of Egypt, although directly intended to bring about the release of the Israelites, were also object lessons for them on the character of God. God is not like the gods of Egypt. God is all-powerful. God is holy. God punishes wickedness. God is always truthful. God remembers his promises. And we could go on. The point is that despite the physical manifestation of God's awesome power, Israel had still no better knowledge of who God was than the pagans they lived among. It was the same in Jesus' day. Christ performed many miracles and displayed awesome power over death and the demonic powers of the world. His miracles even demonstrated more power in some instances than what was displayed for ancient Egypt. Still, that generation of Israelites did not believe as the first generation did not believe, and so it is today. We have seen the power of God's plagues in our country, and yet we do not listen to his warnings to repent. And I believe more plagues are coming. And unless God's people return to God and arouse from our dreary slumber, we will pay dearly for our apathy. We, like Israel of old, have cried out to God to bring our nation back to repentance. And I believe God has heard us and he has answered. But we, not unlike Israel, have rebelled against God. And as Israel complained about food and drink, we have not trusted God to provide for our needs either. As Israel made the golden calf, so we have constructed idols of both our own fashioning and misconceptions about who God is, thinking that it's okay to believe what we want to believe about God and to tolerate error. As Israel rejected the command of God to drive out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, and so we have not driven out the pagan thoughts in our land or the sin in our own lives. And as captive Israel, clad with the irons of their own indifference, forgot the Lord of glory, so we too, in our apathy, in a very real sense, have forgotten God. So what will we do? What will our response be? We are standing in the desert, evaluating our course of action regarding Canaan. What will we do? The first thing we need to do is be active in repentance. We must stop doing what we are doing and start doing what we already know we should. As Christians living in this period of history that we are in, we know very well what we should and should not be doing. But we do not act upon our knowledge. And faith, without works, is dead. Brethren, repentance is not only a gift given by God, it is also a constant turning. It is not merely a one-time event. If it were, we would never be plagued by sin again and that we would have struggled with and repented of before. No, repentance requires hard work and diligence. That's why Paul urges us in Colossians 3, verse 5, to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. We know that we are not completely sanctified, but what has stopped our desire to continue sanctification? We have grown weary of the struggle. Find renewed zeal in your life for the holiness that resembles God's holiness. Submit willingly to the refining fire of God and let go of the wood, hay, and the stubble that you have held on to for so dearly over the costly gems of God's blessings. 
Then God will move quickly in your distress. For he says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. It is not to the nation of arrogant, self-righteous Christians to which God will send healing, but to the assembly of contrite and broken-hearted believers. To these people, God will send his blessing. Truly, if we want God to heal our nation, we must stop blaming the pagan thought America keeps generating as the reason for our apathy. We must also stop blaming the pagan people for the judgment that befalls us. If we are to be salt and light to the world... What good is salt that has lost its saltiness to an open wound? And what good is a light placed under a bowl or under a bed to a dark world? You know, I'm sure that there were many godly people that went into captivity with the last stiff-necked king of Judah, Zedekiah. Turn in your pew Bibles to page 730, and let's take a look at the account as Judah goes off into captivity. Page 730, for those that are just using their own, 2 Chronicles 36, verses 11 through 20. 2 Chronicles 36, starting with verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart, and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his word, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary, and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant, who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Why has God sent so many events upon us? Because we, God's people, like Israel of old, have not been the people we need to be. We, like them, have not been diligent to the commands of God or listened to his exhortations to repent. 
We have brought shame on the name of Christ in much the same way as Zedekiah defiled the temple of the Lord. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Luke 13, verse 34. Our Lord desires restoration. May he find us willing to be gathered unto him, else we be swept away with the wicked into captivity. Secondly, in the passage we read as our scripture reading, we find that subsequent generations of Israelites did to avoid being in that position again. In Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8, again, page 914 in the Pew Bible. A maskal of Asaph, O my people, hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. In a very real sense, the children we need to teach are not just our physical children. I am not advocating that we should not teach our physical children. What I mean is this. In our times, the children of the church are not necessarily the physical offspring of our families, but rather the converts who attend our church as a result of this church's ministry. It is to these people that we are to teach how to revere God and demonstrate how to fully trust God. Again, I am not suggesting that we do not teach our physical children about God until they become converted. If we did wait to witness to them, they might never be converted while under our authority. But what we need to do is actively teach our faith to fellow Christians. People learn little by listening. They learn better by following an example. And this is why Paul states in his first letter to the Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. One thing I have noticed in my years as an educator, people, especially students, can smell insincerity a mile away. They can also recognize when a teacher is trying to teach something they don't really believe in. Students learn more quickly and more completely when the teacher not only knows what they need to know, they also model it for the students. This principle comes through in the spiritual arena as well. In fact, I would say the spiritual arena is the reality, and everything else is shadow. We aren't fooling the new Christian to whom we are trying to instruct in the ways of the Lord when we try to hide the sin in our lives. We are ashamed of the sin, and rightly so, but instead of hiding it, we need to get rid of it. Likewise, they are less likely to put into practice something that they are told to do when the person instructing them to do it isn't doing it themselves. Change is never easy, but it is biblical and necessary for our survival as a church. Brethren, our church community is not succeeding in bringing in new converts because we are not witnessing. 
and our church community has been remiss in our duties to properly instruct the few converts we do have because we are not living as we should. We pray on Wednesday night that God would bring us new converts, and I believe we should be asking him to change our hearts so we could properly address the needs of a person newly converted to Christ. The aftermath of this past year and most recent events concerning our election affords us the opportunity to witness and redirect our own lives in accordance to God's word. These are uncertain times in America, but there is hope for our country. There is hope for the benighted souls of our countrymen, but their hope and our hope cannot be grounded in a vaccination from the present viral scourge. Their hope and our hope cannot be founded in a conservative president in the Oval Office or conservative legislatures and courtrooms. Their hope and our hope cannot be anchored in racial harmony and equality. Their hope and our hope must be found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, who, to ransom his captive people, came and died for their freedom, true freedom, not freedom from mortal men in power, but rather freedom from the power of sin and death. His chosen people, the fools of fools, who sold themselves willingly into slavery, it was for these wretches that Christ came to save. And as Israel was led out of the Egyptian captivity by pillars of cloud and fire, so our Lord Jesus Christ leads us out of our captivity from the clutches of sin. Israel's trek was arduous and full of pain, as our lives are fraught with hardship and trials. However, our covenant relationship with Christ and Israel's covenant relationship to God is where our likeness ends. Under Israel's covenant, animals had to be sacrificed for the remission of sin. Strict regulations regarding the animal and ceremonial washing had to be completed. And once a year, the high priest had to appear before God in the unapproachable Holy of Holies to offer atonement for the entire assembly. If these sacrifices were not completed properly, death would overtake the participants as the Holy God Almighty would strike them down. Under the Mosaic system, Israel was not able to enter into Canaan land. Despite some of their attempts to follow what God had commanded them, they failed to exactly follow all of God's regulations. But God is perfect and holy, and he demands the same of his people Israel, as with us. They would be left without hope because of all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Not only was Israel deficient in completing their responsibilities, but concerning the sacrifices they did make, God said through the writer of Hebrews 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So a new covenant was needed, a better one, one that relied on the perfect work of God and not on the fallible work of men. Jesus, the Son of God, perfect and in total unison with God the Father, came to earth to secure the way of salvation. As Israel's animal sacrifices had to be without any defect or blemish, so Christ was perfect in every way. 
And as each family in Israel would celebrate their own Passover feast with their own sacrificial lamb, so Christ was sacrificed for his chosen family. God the Father placed on Christ the Son all of our iniquities. They were buried with Christ and left in the tomb when he rose again. In heaven, he ever pleads for us in the role of our high priest, and we have no worry of him ever dying or leaving office. Through his atoning work, we now fear no condemnation from God the Father. Israel's covenant was abrogated, and our covenant is complete through Christ. There is nothing that we can add to what he has done. For every believer here today, let us pause and remember what Christ has done. And later today, we will remember him in the sacrament of the Lord's table. For if we were left with Israel's deficient covenant, we would have no security or hope. But praise be to God that we have hope that the work of Christ is more than sufficient to bring us peace with God. And for every unbeliever here today, you have no security. Your next breath may be your last, and you will find yourself before this holy God who made the universe. And if you die without the blood of Christ covering your sin, you will face the wrath of God alone. And despite popular fallacy, you will not have a good time in hell. Hell is a terrible place, devoid of any comfort. It is a place abandoned by God. And you think the world's a terrible place to be with? All the uncertainty, destruction, hatred, and death? Try being in a place where God has removed his hand. It is a place devoid of sanity, peace, and hope. It is the place where you will spend all eternity regretting what you had done in your earthly life as you missed Jesus and his work of redemption. And there will be no redemption from hell. This may very well be where you are today, under the wrath of God. But you do not have to stay in this position. Christ has completed his work. There is nothing that you bring to the table. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, verse 9. Also, concerning salvation, God says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8. God has given the gift of salvation. The work is finished, and his guarantee is ironclad. Call on Jesus Christ today to save you, so that you may enter into Canaan land. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example in scripture of Israel and how often we look and point our fingers and, and shake our heads at them, Lord, and we don't see that we're the same. I pray, Lord, that you will work in our hearts today, that you will grant us repentance, that you'll grant us a desire for holiness, to be like Jesus Christ, and that we may be able to shine like lights in the darkness and to bring others into your kingdom. I pray for the strength to do that, Lord. I pray for you to send your spirit upon your people and for you not to write Ichabod above our doorstep.
We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn is 493 in the Trinity. 493. Andrea. Once you find it, the hymn, will you stand with me, please? There are five verses on this. There's one at the top of the other page. Thank you.
Ten minutes and we'll regather for the Lord's table.